happy Lord's Day. It is good to be face-to-face before the Lord together in worship this morning. One of my favorite things about being a father is giving gifts to my children. Sometimes I do this just because it's fun to give them nice things. As grandparents know, it's always good to spoil kids. But I like to do it too. I like to give them good gifts. I love their excitement and the joy that it brings as they enjoy them. Sometimes I give gifts not just because, but in response to a job well done. For example, when Elliot completed his reading lessons years ago now, his reward was to go to the movies. And while we were there, we got one of those kid trays with the popcorn and the pretzels and the big old thing of Coke. And we watched some terrible animated kids movie. He was in hog heaven. It was great. Or Owen, uh, when he finished his lessons, we, we went down to the then newly opened Black Bear Creamery, ice cream, ice cream well earned. Or even just this past week, Isaac and Benjamin, and I don't know how much Lily helped, but uh, they went foraging for blackberries. And their mother told them, if you get enough blackberries, I will make you a cobbler. Ah, the reward of hard work. The cobbler was quite delicious. Parents love to reward their children. And likewise, God the Father takes great delight in rewarding his children. That's our main idea this morning. God takes great pleasure in rewarding his children. And I've given you a sort of application there to maybe put in your pocket and carry around. We live by faith. And God pours out his grace. We live by faith and God pours out his grace. We are in 2 Kings chapter 4 this morning. And we'll be covering verses 8 through 16 and the story of the Shunammite woman. You can look there in your outline and you remember that we are in chapter 4 here, which is a remix of sorts of 1 Kings chapter 17. And the big argument that the author is making is that the ministry of Elijah is continuing in the ministry of Elisha. Though Elijah is gone and has been taken up into heaven, God's power is still at work. God hasn't gone anywhere. God is present with his people, and he is blessing the faithful remnant that remains in idolatrous Israel. And so how the author is showing us that Elisha bears that prophetic mantle and power is by showing us how he does the same sorts of miracles that Elijah does. He ministers to widows, he multiplies resources, he raises the dead. God's spirit is with him. And so last week we saw him multiply the oil of the widow who was crushed with debt. And this week we see him care for a wealthy woman in response to her hospitality. Look with me. Let's let's pray first, and then you can look with me at verse 8. Let's pray. Father, pray that you would make us good soil this morning that the seed of your word would take root in us and would spring up with the fruit of faithfulness. Pray that you would make us Christ-like as a result of 
hearing your voice from this text. Teach us your ways. Put your word in us. Speak, Lord, your people listen. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 8. This whole chapter reads like a highlight reel. So it's like one scene to the next. But one day, Elisha went to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. Now, you have had this experience before. You've gone to someone's house, they invite you in, and they say, you really must have something to eat or drink. And you're going, no, no, I'm fine. And they're, no, no, let me, let me get you some tea. And they've got the kettle on the stove, and they're putting the cup in front of you, and the spoon and some sugar. I'm just going to put some, some tea on. Do you want anything to eat? I have some pastries here. It's early morning. Like, no, I'm fine, really. You know, all of a sudden, there, there are donuts in front of you and, and a cup of tea. They're, they're urging you to eat food. They're, they're being just good hosts or Maybe you've had the experience after church sometimes. Someone will come up to you, say, we're going to lunch together. We're going we're gonna to go down to the Mexican restaurant. And you respond, yeah, you know, I, I have a nap planned this afternoon. Um, I don't really want to go down there. And they pressure you. you know, they say, well, so-and-so will pay for it, trust me. And then they say, you, know, you got to eat anyway. Come on, come with us. They, they urge you to eat food. And the next thing you know, you're eating a Rose Jalusco or Tacos El Pastor down at Margarita's. You're urged to eat food, to enter into fellowship and relationship. Friendships are often built around the table, and that's what this woman does. She, she's a southern gal, and she comes and she says, you are going to eat, and you're going to eat at my house when you pass through this way. I will not take no for an answer. And so Elisha, he listens to the Shunammite woman. He eats her food, and whenever he passes that way, he eats at her house. And then we look in verse 9, and we realize it's even more than that. And she said to her husband, Behold now, I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. So this, this is escalating. First, the Shunammite woman urges Elisha to eat food, and he's like, no, really, I can go down by the brook. I can, the ravens bring great carry-on, Elijah told me. And she's like, no, 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 you're, you're eating at my house. And now he's passing through regularly enough. She goes, you know, we should really stop functioning like Bucky's, and we should be more like an Airbnb. Let's, let's, she says to her husband, let's build him a room on the roof. We'll put, I can, we'll put a chair in there and, and a bed and a table and a lampstand, everything he needs so that when he comes, he's not just eating, he can actually, he can stay here with us. And some of us go, man, 
even in the time of kings. Women were volunteering their husbands for renovation projects. She's ready to run to the Home Depot. I, I love this woman's posture and her attitude. We have so much to learn from her. She is sold out to being faithfully hospitable. She's a good hostess. And brothers and sisters, all Christians are called to practice hospitality. So we do well to pay attention to the example of this unnamed Shunammite woman. It is easy for us to forget that this very ordinary and simple act of hosting someone is enjoined upon us by God. We need to remember that Paul says in Romans 12, 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. That Peter commands us in 1 Peter 4, 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. In Hebrews 13, 2, we are told, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Indeed, we're not just commanded to do this as Christians in general. Hospitality is important enough that it's a qualification for somebody to serve as a pastor, elder, overseer. Remember Paul says to Titus in verse 5 of chapter 1 of Titus, this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Here's verse 8. But, this is what he must be. He can't be those other things. This is what he must be. Hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So we are commanded to practice hospitality. Pastors are qualified for the office in part by their hospitableness. And we also, sort of coming back around to us again, we're called to imitate the example of our leaders, which would be pastor, elders, overseers. Hebrews 13, 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And if that's not enough to convince us that we need to seek to practice hospitality, we remember that hospitality in particular is rewarded. That God promises to reward hospitality. Do you remember Jesus in Matthew 10, before he's getting ready to send his disciples out? In verse 40, says this, Whoever receives you, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose 
his reward. Hospitality is for all who bear the name of Christ. We should want to practice hospitality because it pleases God, is commanded by God, and will be rewarded by God. And so, I hope that I've done enough to convince you that we should pay attention to what this widow does. We can learn from her. And I I just have extracted two things that she does in terms of application for us. She has a posture of welcome, and she is considerate of others. First, let's start with her posture of welcome. You see that in verse 8. She is welcoming Elisha. She wants him to eat at her place. She urges him to eat food. Come, eat with me. My house is open. My door is open. Let me serve you. And friends, this is how we ought to operate. Be ready and excited and willing to welcome others. And just this week, I was on one of my runs. I typically run, you know, three to like three and a half-ish miles around here, pretty regular routine. <clears throat> and as part of my routine, when I come around Lake Monacan and I get by Jerry and Kay's house, I always look up into their windows. I sort of shield my eyes from the sun and I, I look up in there to try to look into their house, not because I'm creepy, uh, but because I'm trying to see if, if Jerry is working on a puzzle or maybe taking a quick nap. You know, I'm just interested in him in that way. And this past week, I looked up, I covered my eyes, I'm looking for Jerry, and to my, I usually don't see anything, but to my surprise, this week, he's, he's waving me to come inside. And so I, uh, covered in sweat, because it was hot out, I, and I stank really bad, I realized, after the fact, which is probably, they asked me to leave pretty quickly, you know. Uh, but anyhow, I, I got in there, and they, they welcome me in, I'm sitting at their kitchen island, and, and Kay is getting me a glass of ice water, and before I can pick that up to my lips, Jerry's brought some colored water over to me, he assures me that it's good to drink, I didn't trust him, I didn't take it, uh, they, they've put uh, those little pretzels with peanut butter inside of them, have slid in front of me, take some pretzels, they, they were, you know, putting away their most recent Costco haul, they hadn't planned for me to be there at all, but they were ready and willing and excited to bring me into their house. I mean, this, this is ordinary, it is simple, it's important. This is hospitality, a, a willingness and a readiness to welcome others into our lives. A willingness and a readiness to be interrupted for the purpose of spending time with other people. I think sometimes we don't practice hospitality because we don't build enough margin into our lives. Or we're just too busy for all that. Or, and this one's prevalent too, we think that hospitality means some sort of performance art, right? If I'm going to have somebody into my home, I've got to have a string quartet here, uh, the place, placemats, you know, there has to be a nice tablecloth, all, all the places have to be set just right, the napkins need to be folded into like a swan, you know, there can't be any toys on the floor, everything has to be on point, pristine, Friends, that's just not true. I mean, I went to Jerry and Kay's and she didn't make me a a five-course meal, right? They hadn't prepared for me in any way. I'm not trying to say their house was a mess. It wasn't. It was very clean, very nice. But they were ready to welcome me. Just like this widow. You, You don't have to be fancy to be hospitable. You do have to make time for it. You do have to have a posture of welcome for it. 
Things don't have to go perfect for you to be a good host. I mean, I know this from experience, and I'm going to share a somewhat embarrassing story. Um, one, I guess it was like a Friday, months ago now, I looked out of my office when I was working, it was a little bit after five, and there was a car in my driveway, and I went, oh no, Chelsea invited someone to dinner, she forgot to tell me, you know, this is a pretty normal occurrence, I, I'll, I'll, I'll get over there. And this is not the first time this has happened, there's been some times where uh, we forgot we invited somebody over, I think Connie has had this experience, you know, uh, sorry we forgot, go home. But, but this time I go, no, you know, I think Chelsea's remembered, I, you know, I walk in the door, uh, Jed and Melody are there, and I just strike up conversation with them, and I'm thinking in the back of my head, I can't believe that I forgot about this, but then I catch Chelsea's eye, and her eyes are wide and surprised too, because she too had forgotten that we were having dinner guests, but there was food in the oven, and so I was trying, I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen here exactly. It was the end of the week, and as I was sort of rehearsing or remembering what was in our pantry and in our refrigerator, I went, not much. Like, no idea what she's going to cook. And so that, that evening, we served uh, bratwursts uh, without any buns and Brussels sprouts. Oof. But Jed and Melody didn't know any different. We had fun, we had good conversation, and at the end of the night, we told them, hey, we totally forgot you were supposed to come over, but it's been fantastic. And they sort of laughed, and we enjoyed our time together. And some of you are going, wait a minute, we haven't seen Jed and Melody in a while. And it's not because I served them Brussels sprouts, okay? They're in Europe. I actually think they're on their way back somewhat now-ish, but that's not why they're not. We, we <laughs> I needed to clear it up. We, we enjoy the evening together. That was good hospitality, if not ideal. The, what I'm getting at here is that we can do this. You can do this. Welcome people into your home. Have a ready and eager posture of welcome. Be excited to have people eat with you, maybe down at Giuseppe's or at Blue Mountain or, or at your own house. Urge folks to eat food with you. Welcome them. Build relationship. God has called us to do this. And the Shunammite woman, man, she knocks it out of the park. She gets Elisha just what he needs in regard to food, and she prepares for him. That was the second thing. She has a deep consideration of his needs. She thinks about him when he's not right in front of her. She thinks, how can I serve this man of God? You know, it's interesting how often consideration and preparation work together. She thinks about him, and he travels here a lot. How could I make life better for him? You'll notice she's not thinking about what she gets out of the exchange. She's looking to his interests. Oh, you know, I have the means. I'll build a house on the roof. We can stay here makes preparation to be hospitable as a result of her consideration of the prophet. Another good example in our congregation, I'm full of them today. Last year, I guess it was June, July-ish, uh, it was before that, but, but Tim and Margie had called me unprovoked, and they said, or maybe Chelsea, they don't like to talk to me as much, but, but they said to us, they said, listen, we're going to go put our RV up 
around Natural Bridge. There's a campground there. And we want you and your family to go and stay there for the week. And no, no strings attached. We just would like you to have a good time. You go, why, why would they do that? Some of you are going, they wanted to get rid of you for a little bit. Others of you are going, maybe they wanted to trap you in a small space with your kids for a week. No, I don't think they were trying to get back at me in any way. They, <laughs> uh, they were just trying to be kind. They, they'd thought about me and my family. They said, how can we serve them? How can we be hospitable? This is, this is the sort of thing we want to do. Good hospitality is, is welcoming, it's eager to serve, and it considers the interests of others. I was struck when I was thinking about this this week, how closely related our consideration of others and humility and hospitality all are. And as I thought about it, I had my mind taken to that passage in Philippians 2 that I just I, it needs to be in every Christian's DNA. Remember, Paul writes in verse 3 of Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Biblical hospitality, like the hospitality of the Shunammite woman, welcomes and considers. It builds relationship and seeks to serve. The goal of hospitality is to love others and to welcome them as Christ has loved us and welcomed us. We want to live out Romans 15, 7. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of of God. You know, who does Christ welcome and how does he welcome? Jesus Christ welcomes all who will come to him in faith. He welcomes the weak and the wounded. He welcomes the sick and the sore. He welcomes the poor and the rich. He welcomes the Jew and the Gentile. He welcomes tax collectors and sinners. He even welcomes sinners like you and I. He welcomes all who come in faith. When we think of how Jesus Christ has welcomed us, how he gave himself up for us so that we might be welcomed into the family of God, this ought to inspire us to faithful hospitality, to a welcoming of others and of one another, and I hope that when we think of Jesus' welcome of us, of his invitation to come in and have relationship, that we think of his words in Matthew 11, verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. 
non-Christian, come to Christ. Turn from your sin and come to him. He, He welcomes you with arms wide open. He will give you rest. He will give you joy. He will give you eternal life. Come to him. This Shunammite woman exercises godly hospitality. In the midst of an idolatrous and dark Israel, she is part of a faithful remnant that shines brightly. And her faithfulness to God does not go unnoticed. Elisha wants to reward her. Verse 11. One day, he, that's Elisha, came there and he turned into the chamber and rested there. He's hanging out in her Airbnb. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite. When he called her, she stood before him. And he said to him, say now to her, see, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. I just love this. He calls her in. He says, what is to be done for you? And she answers, I don't need anything. I'm content with what I have. I am secure and satisfied. Don't you love this? She is being hospitable, caring for the prophet, not because she wants to get anything out of it, but because she wants to please God. She's doing it for the pleasure of serving God, and she is content with what she has. You want me to speak a word to the people of power on your behalf, Elisha asks. She says, no. I'm good. I am content. Makes me think of Paul's words in 1 Timothy 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Here we have a wealthy woman who is poor in spirit, and rich in Christ. She's content. Let us work and pray to be more like her, godly with contentment, serving God because we love him and we want to obey him. We know his word always works for the best. She says she doesn't need anything. She's content. But Elisha is not content to leave it there. Look at verse 14. And he said, seems like she's left the room now. He's speaking to Gehazi. What then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, well, she has no son and her husband's old. Elisha said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway. It's such a fun detail. She's in the doorway. 
Elisha said, At this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, No, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. always have that person on your Christmas list. You just never know what to get them. Like, what do you get the person that has everything and needs nothing? I mean, that's where Elisha is at here. He's really stumped. He can't figure out what to get her. He's on the verge of maybe procuring one of those, like, meat and, you know what I'm talking about, the little meat things that you get? It's like a sausage. It comes in a box. Crackers. I guess we'll just do one of those. I saw it in the mall. Gehazi, we'll pick one of those up for her. Maybe some socks. Uh, I was thinking maybe a gift card. Do you have any ideas? And Gehazi says, well, her husband's old and she has no son. We almost feel the spring of excitement uncoil in Elisha's chest. He's like, that's it. Like, you can't even wait. He call, call her, call her, that's it, call her. We'll give her a son. Striking how nonchalant the text is about it. Right? Oh, yeah, we can just, she doesn't have a kid. You can just promise her that. But this is the power of God that Elisha bears. And this is a gift that is so good, even the faithful Shunammite woman can't quite believe it. It's too big for her heart. She's, she says, you know, almost like, like shut up. Like, don't. Don't lie to me. She has an unbelief to her. I read this and I thought so much about it. She's afraid to get her hopes up and I thought, how often am I like that? And I sort of did, you don't have to try to track with me here. Did simple thinking in my head. I went, it's a sin not to believe God. If God is good, I should believe that. Yes, I believe that. If God is good and he's my, tells me he's, he's my good father and that he gives me good gifts and that he works everything together for my good and his glory, if I don't, if I believe that, I shouldn't be so pessimistic. If I don't believe that, then I'm going to be prone to discouragement and to never hoping for anything. We talked a little bit about this in Sunday school this morning, and Matt said something, I'm going to mess it up, right? Don't look forward to anything, and you'll never be disappointed by anything, or something like that. You'll never be disappointed. And I think so often, I have a penchant for living that way. Don't get too excited. There are clouds on the horizon. Something terrible is going to happen prone to adopting like a, an Eeyore mentality. Y'all remember Eeyore, right? The melancholy donkey from Winnie the Pooh. He has all kinds of one-liners, but he says like, what, uh, it's a good morning, which it probably isn't. Or when he finds his tail, he's like, just gonna lose it again anyway. I don't remember his voice. That was probably a bad, he, he's not pumped. He's, not, he's just a depressing character always has this gloomy darkness about him. And so often I go, that's me in my Christian life. I'm so afraid to hope for anything good in the short term 
which is, you know, I'm trying to guard myself, I guess, from disappointment. Yeah, I believe God for eternity and for resurrection and for making all things new, but I don't trust him to give me anything good now in the short term. I guess really silly thinking. I do it. I don't, don't believe the Lord. Friends, if you're like me, this is a, a sin that's sort of it's hard to repent of. Friends, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God gave up Jesus Christ so that you and I could be adopted into his family, how are we going to be so ridiculous to think that he's not going to give us good and perfect gifts in this life? He does. It doesn't mean he's a, a genie. You rub the lamp, you get what you want. It doesn't mean he's a vending machine. You put your quarters in, you get what you want out. What it does mean is that he rewards faithfulness, that he's a father who delights to give good things to his children. Every good gift is from above. Every perfect gift is from above, from our heavenly father who does not change. He's good yesterday, today, and forever. And he has promised us good things. We should believe him. We should not be afraid to be cheerfully hopeful. We need to reject the Eeyore mentality. Constant pessimism implies that we do not believe that God is good. Constant sort of living in fear and disappointment makes it seem as if we don't believe that God is sovereign. When we refuse to rejoice in God's present blessings, when we refuse to hope in God's good gifts that are promised in the future, we short-circuit our present gratitude. It is okay, and I'm prescribing it actually, to be excited and hopeful about what God is going to do in your life. It's okay to be excited and to be hopeful about the gifts he might give to you. And in those moments, you owe him gratitude and thanksgiving. When you sort of go, now God's not going to do that. He would never do anything good to me. That's insulting to him. And it keeps you from giving him thanks for the good things that he's given to you right now. He is worthy of your gratitude. He is worthy of your hope. This is what is to mark Christians, right? Faith, hope, love. Hope is in the middle there. We're to be a hopeful people, not a hopeless people. Yes, our ultimate hope is in Jesus Christ and in his return. He's our blessed hope. He's going to make all things new. And he's our hope for then, and he's our hope for now. Our hope is in Christ. We are a hopeful people, and we should live like it. Not, should not have the attitude when God is doing good things in our lives, we shouldn't have that attitude of, oh, don't lie to me, God. That's not going to work out. You know, suffering's just going to come anyway. Can't help to hear. She says, do not lie to your servant and doesn't really believe what Elisha has said. 
But there's this phrase, it's two words in Hebrew, and it's just next year. And it only appears one other place in the Bible. You want to, anyone want to take a guess where that is? Nobody's brave this morning. Not in Job. That, that's a good guess, though. Genesis 18. And what we have in Genesis 18 is Sarah. Post-menopause. Very old and dusty. Not quite as seasoned as her husband Abraham. And God makes a promise that she will give birth to a promised son. That's the only other place this phrase is used. And so it's like the author of Kings is sort of winking at Genesis 18. It's hoping that we would turn our attention there. You remember what happens? She laughs at the prospect. God says, you're going to have a baby. (laughs) Shut up. Don't lie to me. Not happening. But God has the last laugh. A child is born. And he has the last laugh here. And I, I just, I love the Bible. We don't get Elisha's response. She says, don't lie to me. You know, there's not any like, hey, I'm God's prophet. I'm kind of a big deal around here. I just did this oil thing. I was with Elijah. He raised the dead. Like, we can handle it. It's great. There's none of that. No explanation. Just verse, don't lie to your servant. And then verse 17, the word of the Lord is fulfilled. But the woman conceived and she bore a son about that time the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. God's word works. God's will gets done. God's promises get kept. And he loves to do good to his people. He delights to reward the faith of his people. A child is born. And notice, this is a theme in the Bible. Barrenness and bearing children. All the way back in Genesis 3, God makes that first promise of the gospel. He says, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. So that when we are going through the Bible, anywhere we see a a child in the redemptive history born, we're going, could this be the one? Could this be the one who's going to crush the head of the snake? And whenever we see barrenness, we see the curse, we see sin, we wonder, Will the snake crusher come? And so over and over again, we see God bring life where there is no life. We see him bring fruit from the barren womb. And it's a significant showing us that God is ultimately going to overcome even the curse of death. That the snake crusher is going to come and slay that great dragon. And we see it throughout this theme, right? You have Sarah, and she gives birth to Isaac, who is the promised son, who's named Laughter because she laughed. Then you go to Rebecca, and guess what? She's Isaac's wife. She's barren too, until she gives birth to twins, Esau and Jacob. Jacob, he's a significant guy. He gets renamed Israel. And from Israel comes, well, the people of God, Israel. His wife, Rachel, is barren until she gives birth to Joseph. And Joseph, he's a significant figure. He saves God's people. He's betrayed by his brothers. 
cast into a pit, put in chains, and raised to the right hand of power. And from that right hand of power, he provides food in the midst of famine, saving his family. He anticipates Jesus who saves us. He's, he's a significant figure. We go on through the Old Testament. We meet uh, Mrs. Manoah in the book of Judges. The angel shows up, says, you're barren, you're going to have a baby, and she gives birth to Samson. We all know Samson, right? He gets the jaw of a donkey bone and just kills a bunch of guys, fights off the Philistines, and he defeats God's enemies in his death. He's tied up against those pillars, and he pulls the whole building down upon himself and down upon God's enemies. It's in his death that he has his greatest victory. He points us to Jesus, who in his death accomplishes securing for us life. Well, then, then you come over to the, the book of Samuel, right, right after Judges. And that book opens. We're going to transition from the time of the Judges to the time of the Kings. And Hannah is there, and she is barren. And she's weeping and praying to God. And, and the priest thinks she's drunk, and he's like, you drunk person, stop being drunk in the temple. And she says, I'm not drunk, I'm praying, praying for a child. And he says, you'll have one. And Samuel is born. He's a great man. He anoints kings, he anoints Saul, he anoints David. Significant figure. We jump forward into the New Testament. You meet Elizabeth and she's barren. And then angel shows up in the temple while Zechariah is working in there. Zechariah can't believe that he's going to have a son. And so the angel says, well, you aren't going to be able to talk until he's born. And so he goes home and does his pantomiming to Elizabeth. Hey, there's a baby. He's going to come somehow. She gets pregnant. She keeps it to herself. It's almost too good to be true. John the Baptist is born. No one greater was ever born of women, Jesus says. John the Baptist, the new Elijah who prepares the way for the Savior of the world. And then, of course, God one-ups himself. We come to Mary, who is not barren, but is a virgin. Pregnancy is not just an improbability, it is an impossibility. And God, well, he sends his one and only son to take on a second nature to himself and take up residence in her womb. He takes up residence in the womb of a virgin girl and is born so that we might be born again. He lives a perfect life so that one day we might walk in the newness of life. Jesus Christ dies so we might be forgiven of our sins. He rises from the dead so we might rise to eternal life together with him. He ascends into heaven so that we might receive his Holy Spirit and carry on his mission and work in the world, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's going to return to conquer evil so we might live happily ever after under his righteous rule. And so we say, hallelujah, what a savior. Praise God, the snake crusher has come. The victory has been won. Life has been secured. Joy has been brought to the world for all who will turn from their sins and trust in him. This is what God has done throughout the Bible. It's one of those main motifs, right? Barrenness gives way to life. Death gives way to resurrection. The promised Messiah comes 
He comes to redeem his people through his death and his resurrection. He's coming again to make all things well. Made the whole point of the whole Bible in this motif. Now, ask yourself, what is unique about this unnamed Shunammite woman and her unnamed son? Nothing. They're, they don't, what I mean is, they're unique because they don't play a significant role in redemptive historical history. There's no star role that her son steps into. And so you come to this question, you go, why, why did God decide to bless this Shunammite woman with a son? Because he loves her. Because he loves her. Isn't that incredible? He cares for her. And he blesses her. This is what God is like. He's big-hearted and generous. When we think of our Father in heaven, we should not think of him with crossed arms and pursed lips. But, with, but as you know, somebody who loves well, who has strength under control, laughs big laughs, sort of see him smiling, smiling when Sarah laughs and laughing back at the Shunammite woman. She says, don't lie to me. Saying, I'm, I'm telling you the truth. I have good gifts for you. This passage should encourage us to reject the Eeyore mentality of don't lie to your servant, that can't happen, and to embrace the posture of Mary. Remember what Mary says when God promises her a child? Luke 1.38, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Let it be to me according to your word. I mean, we need to reject the despondent your mindset and adopt a merry mentality. We need to have a hopeful trust in the Lord. He has given us all things. He gives us every good gift. He's promised to do good to us. We should be cheerfully hopeful. Brothers and sisters, this passage should spur us on to hospitality, to faithfulness in all things in light of the pleasure our God takes in rewarding his children. God is not stingy. He loves to bless us. God is the overflowing fountain of all good. Paul says in Timothy that he richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Friends, cheerfully hope in Christ. Obey him for the joy of it with an eye on the rewards that he promises. God delights to reward the obedience of his children. He often rewards his servants with gifts simply to make them happy with his gifts. Don't let any sourpuss version of Christianity rob you of this truth. Only the gospel according to the serpent makes God out to be stingy. Church, God takes great pleasure in rewarding his children. Let us draw near to him in faith and please him 
and seek his reward. Hebrews 11.6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God because whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. God delights to reward his children. Let's live like we believe that, obeying his word, living for his delight, looking to his reward. Let us live by faith. And let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We, we do not deserve to know you. But in your mercy, out of your great love for us, you have chosen to reveal yourself to us and to adopt us into your family, to call us your sons and your daughters. Not only that, you did this even though we acted as your enemies. You see us in our sins and instead of crushing us as we deserve, you sent your son to be crushed for us. What a scandalous reality. You've given us life and breath and everything you've promised us, eternal life. And yet, so often, we don't trust you for good things in this life. I pray that you would forgive us of this fearful and anxious living. We ask that you would help our unbelief, that you would increase our faith. Help us to believe your word, to walk in full confidence in your providence. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.